Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou leftst them, or lie here with me. He offers us a sense that when you love, you might be offering up some part of yourself that will never otherwise see daylight. And I think if you think about that done, you get somebody who is pouring out the finest form of human clarity. I'm looking up at this board of the rectors and vicars going right back to the 13th century, and there, right at the top of the second column, in 1624, is John Donne. Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Those are the opening lines of The Flea by John Donne, the poet and preacher and contemporary of Shakespeare. Donne had a paradoxical career. He began as a precocious young Catholic scholar, writing lewd love lyrics about sex and bodily pleasure, and he ended his life as the Protestant Dean of St Paul's, delivering passionate sermons to weeping crowds. In between, he was a lawyer, a pirate, a politician, a courtier, and chaplain to the king. His contemporary, Ben Jonson, called him the first poet in the world in some things, but feared that, for not being understood, he would perish. Later writers were more scathing. Dr Samuel Johnson, not a fan, dubbed Dunn and his contemporaries the metaphysical poets. Dunn's reputation began to revive, however, in the 19th century, championed by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, among others. And since the 20th century, he has been re-established as one of the greatest writers in the English language. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and today I'm going to circle and anatomize the city of London, attempting to pin down the paradoxical, problematic, and unparalleled wit of John Donne. 
I'm standing now on Bread Street in the middle of the city of London. Bread Street named after the medieval street where bread would have been sold, but now the centre of, of glass and steel corporate uh, London. But down Watling Street, which cuts directly across Bread Street, we can see the spectacular dome of St Paul's rising high above the glass office buildings. And I'm standing with our guest for today's episode. It's a real pleasure to welcome Catherine Rundle to the podcast. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. Catherine Rundle is a fellow of All Souls College at Oxford. She writes best-selling, award-winning books for children, such as Rooftoppers in 2015, The Explorer in 2017, and most recently, Impossible Creatures, which is out in 2023. Her book, The Golden Mole, about remarkable, real but endangered creatures, was shortlisted for Waterstone's Book of the Year in 2022. Her PhD thesis was on John Donne, and in 2022, her biography, Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, won the highly prestigious Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction. And Catherine, that biography is just drenched in extraordinary accolades from... from from everywhere. It's been the most <laughs> lauded book. Congratulations. It's an absolute triumph. Thank you so much. Um, in, in that biography, Super Infinite, you thank your parents at one point for pinning done poetry next to the bathroom sink when you were small. Can you remember when you first encountered John Donne? I think I was probably about nine. Um, we were paid 50p per poem that we memorised and I was a very uh, rapacious and greedy child with expensive taste in small plastic dog figurines and so it was a source of income for me to memorise poetry. I should say that my parents were not putting up the licentious verse. It was, it was the satires and go and catch a falling star poetry that is uh, at least medium acceptable for a nine-year-old. <laughs> Fabulous. I love the idea of your nine-year-old self brushing your teeth and memorising done. Now, the reason we're standing on Bread Street here in the city of London is that this is where Dunn was born. And you say in, in, in the book that the fact that he was born in sight of both his future job and his final resting place at St Paul's must be pretty rare. So what was the, what was the family situation that he was born into here? So Dunn was born into a family that had once been wealthy and high-flying, uh, and they were Catholic. And over the previous Catholic shakedowns over the last century, they had lost the majority of their wealth. His mother was the great-niece of Thomas More, the uh, Catholic martyr, and his father died when he was just four years old. And after that, his mother remarried the physician John Simmons, who was uh, president of the Royal College and physician to the king. So he knew people who would have known, you know, the touch and smell of royalty. But being born Catholic at a time when to be Catholic was to be persecuted meant that his entire childhood was awash with fear and a kind of constant wariness that was necessary to survive. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that he was sent at the age of 12 to Hart Hall at Oxford, right? Because it was a, one of the sort of safe spaces for Catholics where he could go and start to be educated. And it sounds like he was an absolutely sort of prodigious child, wasn't he? An incredible student. He, he studied there, went on to Cambridge after Oxford, 
Uh, he studied at Thavies Inn and Lincoln's Inn, as we'll hear later. Um, and so let's, let's skip forward to Dunn as a young man. There's a wonderful passage in your book where you, you describe that famous portrait of him, known as the Lothian portrait, when he's about 23. It's quite a dark image, but his face emerges out of the middle of it. And Catherine, can I ask you to read what you say about it? Because it's such a brilliant passage. He was a man who knew about fashion. He wore a hat big enough to sail a cat in, a big lace collar, an exquisite moustache. He positioned the pommel of his sword to be just visible, an accessory more than a weapon. And his beauty deserved walk-on music, rock and roll loot, all architectural jawline and hooked eyebrows. Those eyebrows were the author of some of the most celebratory and most lavishly sexed poetry ever written in English. (laughs) That's such a good line. That's brilliant. And if anyone hasn't seen that portrait, it's easy to find online and it's a wonderful image of this man at the start of his life. It is, and I think it's important to note, to understand his life, he was ravishingly handsome. And I think that you have to factor that in to the way that people responded to him. His beauty did matter. Well, we'll talk about the ways in which that was perhaps both a blessing and a curse over the course of his life. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about his poetry, which, of course, is, is what Dunn is most famous for today, I'd say. But let's just talk briefly about how that poetry was written and how it circulated at the time. It, you know, it wasn't like publishing poetry in a poetry review today, right? Exactly that. So when you think about poetry in the age, you have to think of it as a very different beast. Poetry mattered more. Poetry was essential to the way that society functioned. Poetry could be um, a promissory note, a form of propaganda, a a love letter, uh, an invoice, uh, an apology, a blackmail. It could be uh, a way of passing the time, but it could also be a way of explicating a complex religious problem or trying to degrade your enemy's mistress. (laughs) It could be so many things. And... When Dunn was writing, he was not writing for a broad public. You have to picture him writing on little scraps, folding them up into four, tucking them into a friend's sleeve, a pocket. There was no postal service in the sense that we know it now, so these poems would have been passed from hand to hand with messenger boys. And as they were passed on, people would copy them out. And of course, as they copied them out, errors would creep in and variations and people would start trying to imitate Dunn. So you have to imagine a kind of a kind of papery merry-go-round, a kind of um, frenetic literary world that is a very different way of working with poetry from the much more professionalised and formal way that we might think of it today. You have a brilliant idea that he became one of the most sort of popular manuscript poets of his generation but couldn't have known that himself because of this sort of sort of osmotic way that his poems travelled between people and as you point out you know the poems we, we read today are, are not strictly necessarily what he wrote they're sort of pieced together from all these different textual versions which which spread out from the original exactly that so any poem that you read by John Donne is in fact by John Donne and the brilliant educated guesswork of profoundly knowledgeable editors. And of course, I guess the other thing is there was a sense that to publish was to descend to Grub Street, to have ink on your fingers, to toil among the working men who turned out, you know, so many words for so many pennies. So 
John Donne, I think, who had a very conscious vision of his place in the class strata, would have been, and indeed we know he was, furious at anybody who implied that he was a jobbing writer. Right. He was better than that right. um, in oh, his own eyes. And in fact, he, at one point, when he had published two poems called The Anniversaries on the Death of a Young Woman Called Elizabeth Drury, he wrote... The fault that I acknowledge in myself is to have descended to print anything in verse. I confess I wonder how I decline to it and do not pardon myself. <laughs> That's great. Yes, and there was a moment later in his life when he did think briefly about collecting some of his poems together, right, and, and tried to sort of ask some, you know, ask for copies from friends and you know, people he'd send them to. And he said, um, it, it cost me more to seek them than it did to make them. But it was harder to sort of gather them back than it was to even write them. Yeah, they were a yes. kind of runaway train. He could not get them back. And of course, although he didn't know he was the most popular poet of the age, he did know that his poetry was treasured. He did know that people were clamouring for it. And of course, also when the time came, Anne knew. The woman he fell in love with knew. Uh-huh. Uh, of course. Well, having set that scene, let's take a stroll now south from Bread Street towards the river. And as we go, let's talk a little bit more about his poems. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth, if the other do. And though it in the centre sit, yet, when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Catherine, you, you describe your book as both a biography of Dunn and an act of evangelism. And you say at one point that to let Dunn slide out of the common consciousness would be as foolish as discarding a kidney or a lung. Is there a danger of that happening, do you think? And then secondly, why was he so good? I think there is always a danger, with basically anyone except Shakespeare, that we risk losing, not losing the knowledge of them, but losing the idea that people who are not academics might benefit in a really powerful and intimate way from engaging with his work. And why was he so brilliant? (laughs) He was a pure original. And I think what originality does is it burns through any number of years. It means that someone can reach out through 400 years of space and offer to you a sense of what has and has not changed in being human. And, of course, Dunn wrote about sex in a way that broke through the confines of the age. Dunn came of age at a time when people were still writing about sex very much in the kind of courtly European Latinate tradition. Um, Sir Philip Sidney, around the same time, was comparing his mistress's shoulders unto two white doves. (laughs) And, you know, elsewhere, someone's cheeks are two white doves. And you get to a point where you do think, well, other birds are available. (laughs) But, But Dunn stepped out of that and said, what if your love is not like a dove? What if your love is stranger 
wilder, more vertiginous than that? What if it is more unique unto the shape of your own peculiar heart? And so instead of writing about roses and flowers and birds, he uses different imagery to think about sex. He writes about sons and princes and uh, remoras, which were an ancient mythical sucking fish, and goats and compasses and diamonds etching a woman's name in a window, where it would be very common to, for instance, denounce your, your rival's mistress as being ugly. It was not common to denounce your rival's mistress as having sort of pus boils akin to those <laughs> yeah. that you would get on the throth of a burning piece of uh, leather that you might boil during a famine. He offered us a sense of ourselves as larger than the conventions which might otherwise constrain us. And so there was the witty done, the done of his mistress going to bed, you know, those famous license my roving hands and let them go behind, before, above, between, below. It's an incredible line, isn't it? But just such uh, suggestive prepositions. <laughs> right. And of course, that whole poem is so full of little uh, sexually quite explicit puns that, you know, you could just draw tiny penises next to each stanza and it would have the same effect. But, but there's that done. And then there is the done of the love poetry. And that done is a done that suggests that maybe sexual love might be a kind of answer to a question that cannot be spoken. He says, this ecstasy doth unperplex. He has a sense that maybe your love can be transformative of your life and of another's. And he offers us a sense that when you love, you might be offering up some part of yourself that will never otherwise see daylight. And I think if you think about that done, the done of the romantic verse, you get somebody who is pouring out the finest form of, of human clarity. Oh, Catherine, how, what a wonderful... That was an absolute tour de force celebration <laughs> of his poetry. How extraordinary... I mean, You've really, you know, just now and in your book as well, you really capture what is extraordinary about this writer. And it's particularly amazing, it strikes me, because, you know, he was writing at a time when poetry was a conventional form, wasn't it? People were writing interviews, very familiar, you know, sonnets, epigrams. And yet every time he used one of these familiar forms, he would turn it on its head or do something different with it or play with it in some way. And, and that sort of attitude continues into his rhythms, into the words he used, into the ideas he employed. Everything is, is bucking against convention and finding a new way to speak, right? Exactly that. So into these forms which had been licked clean by the care and scholarship of hundreds of years of other poets came done roughing them up at the edges again. He would break rhythm, he would uh, involve a lot of foreshortening, substitutions, he would, um, you know, kick enjangement into the river. He would be a kind of force that denied the need for 
uh, poetic propriety. And one of the things important to remember is this didn't just mean that he was a bit of a rebel in terms of poetry. Some people found it genuinely alarming in terms of its kind of implications for social decorum. Ben Jonson famously said of John Donne, you know, done for not keeping of accent deserved hanging. And of course, while he wouldn't necessarily have actually put that to the actual action, there was a very real sense that in eroding a kind of artistic propriety, you might be eroding social propriety. Alexander Pope, much later, went on to rewrite Dunn's poetry so that it (laughs) rhymed and scanned and went da-dum, 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 because he felt that that was the way, not just that it should be, that it needed to be. And I think um, at one point Dunn sort of explains what he's doing, doesn't he? In a a sonnet to Samuel Brooke, he says... um, I sing not siren-like to tempt, for I am harsh. And as you point out, it's as if he's he needs to find a new harsh language to describe what he's feeling and what he what he sees in the world around him. And really, it was Coleridge who was one of the first poets to sort of get what he was doing right. Coleridge wrote that in poems where the writer thinks and expects the reader to do so, the sense must be understood in order to ascertain the meter and I feel like that's so true of Dunn it's like once you sort of puzzle out what he's saying it actually scans perfectly and you you can read it very easily exactly so this is something that I used to tell my students he is worth persevering with because it is the same pleasure as uncracking a locked safe you know they open it and there is gold inside and it is gold that will last but it is also true that Dunn was deliberately difficult. It was not difficult for difficulty's sake to show off, but difficult often in order to force you to marshal the full force of your attention when you met his poetry. And I think many people since then have seen it as a kind of unspoken gesture to the way one might live, that the world deserves the full, untrammeled power of your intelligence and it will be worth the effort that it will take unspooling it as you go through your days. That's wonderful. We've mentioned that he employs these unusual and unexpected metaphors. We've heard just now the um, metaphor of two lovers' souls as the two legs of a pair of compasses drawing a circle. Let's just talk about that, which in the Penguin Classics edition, edited by Ilona Bell, she, she describes that as perhaps his most famous metaphysical conceit in A Valediction Forbidding Morning. And it is amazing, isn't it? He uses this very simple, practical image, and it perfectly describes what he is describing, which is two lovers parting but who will meet again, and, and the, the legs of the compass turn, one stays fixed in one spot while he draws a perfect circle. It's a beautiful image, in fact. It is And I think it lives precisely in its simplicity because it conjures so vivid an image. Dunn was very much in the business of that form of conjuring. And of course, in the business of marrying very ribald licentiousness with these very beautiful stately images. You know, even in this one, thy firmness makes my circle just and makes me end where I begin. You know, uh, end is is orgasm. And there is often in Dunn a very liberating sense that sexuality and wit and desire and passion and clarity can all be joyfully brought to collide with the soul. Mm-hmm. He never denies, even in his most metaphysical moments, that he has a body. Uh-huh. 
another you know, famous example is the flea, of course, where, you know, and apparently it was quite a sort of well-worn trope to like look at the flea that was biting first me and then you and, you know, but what Dunn does with it is so extraordinary, isn't it? He, he looks at this flea that shares the blood of the would-be lovers and then starts transforming the flea. He says, this flea is our marriage bed and marriage temple. And he says, um, though parents grudge and you, we are met and cloistered in these living walls of jet. And it's like the flea has suddenly become this little sort of sacred space for them both. Exactly that. So... As you say, it was a very popular conceit, especially in France, and Dunn transforms it by making it into a dialogue. Mm-hmm. It is what so often is happening in his poetry. You are dropped right into the middle of a conversation and you are left to run to catch up. And that sense of being constantly in flux and motion, I think, is what makes the poetry still feel quite intimately alive you know, 400 years later. In his poem, The Ecstasy, he, he has that phrase, a dialogue of one, and it, it feels like that's often what he's doing in his writing, his, his prose as well as his poetry, but it's, as you say, you're dropped into this dialogue and it's as if the text is speaking to you, the reader, still, and it's like Dunn is reaching out and kind of collaring us and engaging us still over the years. Exactly that. I think it is a poetry with a great deal of breathing humanity in it. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, many poets since have learnt from him about how you make your poetry sufficiently alive to reach out and graft someone by the wrist, you know, hundreds of years later. Well, I think you've made a fantastic case for why we should still be reading Dunn, and, and I'm sure everyone listening is going to run to their copies of Dunn now. But the other thing your book does brilliantly is show that he was so much more than what we may think of him. You know, he was much more than a poet. And so let's carry on walking and talk about some of the other things that he was. Well, we've just walked a little bit further along the Thames now. We're standing up on Blackfriars Bridge. And, Catherine, you say in the book that the timing of Dunn's turning from Catholicism to Protestantism is the central boxing ring of Dunn's studies. Um, so when, when do you think that change happened? If I were to guess, I would say that it had something to do with the death of his little brother, Henry. Henry followed Dunn to Lincoln's Inn and was arrested for harbouring a priest in his rooms. Now, at the time, the penalty for being a Catholic priest was to be hung, drawn and quartered. And Henry, under torture, betrayed the priest and said that uh, he was a priest and did shrive him. Henry was then thrown into jail, a jail through which plague was running rife. And... As far as we know, Dunn didn't visit Henry in jail. Perhaps he was afraid of plague, perhaps he didn't know. But Henry died alone, in great agony, at the age of 19. Gosh. And many scholars think that probably Dunn's resentfulness of both the Jesuits, who had driven Henry, a very young man, to protect them and the increasingly hardline stance that Catholics were taking potentially was at the heart of Dunn's shift from the Catholicism of his youth to Protestantism. It's worth noting, though, that many people disagree. Some people say he never converted at all. It was always just an act of expediency by a brilliant and canny politician. It certainly seems that about this time... There were some changes going on in his life, weren't there? He left Lincoln's Inn. He, uh, 
he became a, essentially a pirate, a kind of man for hire, a privateer, and went on two sea voyages fighting against the Spanish with the Earl of Essex and Walter Raleigh. The first of which sounds like it was quite a success. The second sounds like a total disaster. And then he, during that campaign, he met uh, and befriended the son of Sir Thomas Edgerton, the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. And through that connection, he managed to find himself a position as secretary to Thomas Edgerton and moved into an extraordinary palace, which, in fact, if we look along the Thames now, we can see the embankment gardens as they are today, beautiful beds of tulips and so on, just in front of that huge white Shelmex building with the big black clock face on it. That used to be the site of York House, this enormous palace which was home to the keeper of the Great Seal. And that is where Dunn moved as secretary and very close to the Palace of Whitehall, very close to, to the, the very centre of power in, in England at the time. So already we're seeing a man with many, many sort of different strings to his bow, many different aspects to him. Let's move on now, uh, away from this busy road, to talk about perhaps the nadir of his career. This way. Fall nakedness. All joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be, to taste whole joys. Then, since that I may know, as liberally as to thy midwife show thyself, cast all, yea, this white linen hence, there is no penance due to innocence. To teach thee, I am naked first. Why then? What needst thou have more covering than a man? Well, we've just walked a little way north up Farringdon Street, up what is still, in fact, the, the bed of the River Fleet, which runs down from Hampstead and Highgate all the way through the city and, and enters the River Thames underneath Blackfriars Bridge. And we've stepped off Farringdon Street into a little cul-de-sac called uh, Seacole Lane, Old Seacole Lane. And we're here because this used to be the site of the Fleet Prison a debtor's prison which stood on the very bank of the River Fleet. And, Catherine, as you say in your book, it was, it was a disgusting place and it was expensive. Um, you had to sort of pay to be here and to be... And in fact, there were grills to the outside world where, where people begging from inside prison to try and support themselves here. Now, in 1602, John Dunn was briefly imprisoned in the fleet on the very spot where we're standing now. Catherine, how did that come about? Why was he put in this prison? Well, if you were a romantic, you would say he was arrested for love. <laughs> Dunn, when he was living in York House with the Edgerton family, met Edgerton's niece by marriage, Anne Moore, who came, first of all at the age of 14, to York House to live with her uncle. And some point... In the three years that followed, Anne and Dunn fell in love. And he persuaded her to marry him, which I always think is more remarkable than we might be liable to remember. Because women who disobeyed their fathers, 
could end up in terrible situations. House arrest, there was an account of one young woman who was beaten around the head until her skull cracked. Oh, my God. And... At the gentler end of the scale, the opprobrium of a society which had hitherto looked on Anne as, you know, one of the delightful darlings of the court. But still, she agreed at the age of 17, when he was in his mid-twenties, to marry him. But they did not have permission. They did it secretly. Who knows how they were able to sneak out of the house for long enough, the two of them, to get married. And then they waited. And they waited and waited until, I suppose, an ideal moment to tell her father, Sir George Moore, who was a a fairly well-known squire with a bad temper and a, uh, you know, hunger for hunting and portraits of dogs. (laughs) And when, finally, they broke the news, Dunn probably expected rage. He probably did not expect to be thrown into one of the most disgusting, painful prisons of the time, where it was said that the floor was carpeted with lice. Oh, God. And it was winter, and he had to remain there for some time because he had technically broken canon law because Anne, being only 17, was a minor. And so there then followed a fairly complicated legal convolution in which Dunn tried to get out, tried to persuade both his employer and Anne's father to let him out into house arrest. And eventually, he was released and allowed to take into his arms his bride. But at that point, he'd been fired. They would have been the subject of all of upper-classes London's gossip, and they had nowhere to go. Right. So he, he, he married the woman he loved, but kind of destroyed his career prospects in the process. So let's talk about his marriage to Anne Moore. As you say, they were suddenly sort of gone from this kind of very exalted position right near the centre of power to, to essentially struggling for money and, and you know, not great prospects. And as, as you point out at one point, in their 16 years of married life, Anne was pregnant 12 times and so essentially spent her entire adult life either sort of being pregnant or recovering from childbirth, or as you say, probably doing both at the same time, much of the time. And you also point out that this marriage was stalked by death, as many marriages would have been at the time. They had two stillbirths, three of their children died under the age of 10. So what, what picture do you get of the Duns as a family unit and, and John as a father? So we don't have much in the way of letters, so this is very much an imagining. I think it is possible that the early years of their poverty and the shock of their sudden fall from grace would have been leavened both by youth and good health and by, if you look at the love poetry that was written then, things like the sun rising, if Dunn lived as he wrote, there would have been great joy in living alongside him. But there is also their relative poverty, um, the houses that they lived in, you know, Dunn refers to them as a hospital, a dungeon, a prison. And Dunn discovered, as many men and many, 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 many women in history have discovered, that domesticity has neither the frippery and elegance and audience that is necessary for glamour, nor the private drill-down intensity of private study, it is difficult. And he faced that difficulty, as far as we can tell, without 
startling grace. <laughs> um, tactful <laughs> I think it is possible that Dunn was a very bad father. Mm. In his letters, he refers to them largely when they are gamesome and loud and distracting, when they are expensive, when they are ill, or when they are dead. Right. And by and large, the moments where you get love for the children in the letters is when they are either at risk of dying or have died. And then you get the sense of a kind of tooth-gritted sorrow and horror. So if you were to pull together a picture of their life at this time, it would not be one of great glee, I think. Also, when they were living in South London in Mitcham, in, in what he called a little thin house, he himself took rooms on the Strand, right? So but he could leave Anne and the family and, and sort of gallivant into town and be, be the sort of man about town again on his own. Exactly that. Um, and the poetry eventually tailed off. And Dunn spent more and more time on the way to London. And Anne would have experienced a great deal of pain. We know uh, from some of the letters that she was near to death in many of her deliveries of babies. And so I always want to think about Anne Many of the biographies, because we don't have much about her, have often somewhat neglected her. And it is worth thinking about this question. Would it have been worth it to have been married to perhaps the greatest poet of love and sex that the English language has ever known? Would it have been worth it? And when you think about the pain and the loneliness, I think one is tempted to say, perhaps love is not enough. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like Dunn had a dark side to his makeup, didn't he? But, you know, there's, a, as you point out, you know, there's, a, there's real cruelty in some of his poetry about women, a really sort of pointed misogyny um, in his poems and also in his prose works like The Paradoxes and The Problems. You write about that very well in the book, I think. I always want to make sure that Alongside the Dunn that I love, we acknowledge that there is a Dunn that is spiteful and cruel and furious. And, you know, I, I always say to my students, it is probably anachronistic to talk about Dunn as a straightforward misogynist because the air he breathed was misogynistic. You know, the law was misogynistic, the court was misogynistic, and the poetry on which he would have been raised was misogynistic. But because he was capable of greater clarity and greater flair than many of his compatriots, thereby his misogyny was also more impressive <laughs> and therefore more cruel, more original, more potent, more cutting, more damaging. And I think one has to say alongside all of that poetry which salutes and glorifies the female body and being with the female soul there is poetry that very much doesn't you know there is the elegy the comparison there is rank sweaty froth thy mistress brow defiles like spermatic issue of ripe menstruous boils he was really going for it <laughs> and and in his sort of strange prose paradoxes and problems you say at one point but it, it's sometimes said that the more you read Dunn's verse the more you love him and the more you read Dunn's prose the less you can bear him and I, <laughs> I can I can sort of see why but let's talk briefly about another prose work which he wrote during this period while living in Mitcham what, what was this particularly unusual work that he wrote in, in about 1608 so Dunn 
has claimed to having written the first full-length treatise in English on suicide in history. Uh, he wrote a book called Biothanatos, a declaration of that paradox or thesis that self-homicide is not so naturally a sin that it may never be otherwise. Essentially, a book which argues that suicide is not always wrong, at a time when, in one of those dark and self-defeating ironies, the penalty for attempted suicide was death. And he lays out with quite vivid emotional uh, vulnerabilities the numbers of times that his own body has keened towards suicide, that he has felt you know, the pull of mine own sword, he says. Mm. Um, it's actually quite a specific and... Uh, complex argument. It in no way argues that suicide is fine for everyone. It just argues that in very specific religious contexts, one might say that because Christ could have saved himself from the crucifixion but did not do so, it was a form of suicide and therefore there are some sort of concomitant situations in which suicide would also be justifiable. It's not the free-for-all that it is sometimes portrayed as. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But still a fascinating work for him to have written. And then he did an interesting thing with it, didn't he? He, he, he sent it to a friend, Robert Kerr, and later wrote to Robert saying, um, you know, look after that book. It is a book written by Jack Dunn and not by Dr. Dunn. So he's, in some ways, the origin of this image we have of him as sort of young Dunn and the old Dunn. He does it himself. Reserve it for me if I live. And if I die, I only forbid it the press and the fire. Publish it not, but yet burn it not. And between those, do what you will with it. And I find that fascinating. So he's saying, don't publish this, but also don't burn it. I want it to survive. And it's... Like with all his texts, it's like they sort of slither through the crack in the middle of between those, doesn't Exactly it? that. That kind of slipperiness of John Donne, I think, is uh, very Dunnian. And, of course, he knew that there was the possibility that if it got out, it would be dangerous to him. And, indeed, years later, people were blaming Dunne, even after his death, for other people's suicides. They were saying, this person... Uh, read by Thanatos, and then six years later they killed themselves. <laughs> it is therefore to be laid at Dunn's door. Gosh, that's extraordinary. Well, talking of that split between the young Jack Dunn and the older Dr. Dunn, let's move on now to one of the most important locations in London for Dunn himself and talk about that later period. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Batter my heart, three-personed God. For you was yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. We've just stepped into the historic grounds of Lincoln's Inn, one of the ancient inns of court in London, like Middle Temple and Inner Temple, where barristers have their chambers and, and eventually get cooled to the bar. And it's an extraordinary leafy space. It's, it's almost like, a, like an ancient Oxbridge college. We've got grassy lawns, uh, soaring plane trees, fabulous courts of old buildings with numbered doorways and stairways leading up to different rooms and studies and chambers. There's a hushed, professional, studious silence here. And we've said already that Dunn was a student here. While he was a student here, he was elected Master of the Revels as a young lad about town, which meant he was in charge of putting on uh, the pageantry and wild parties for his fellow scholars. And, and Catherine, what would Lincoln's Inn have been like in the time that Dunn was studying here? So London itself would have been much more green. So they would have been surrounded on some corners by fields. They were allowed to breed rabbits for eating. So occasionally, looking out of his window, he would have seen a fellow student in pursuit of uh, dinner. Um, And the space in which they lived was very, very small. So he shared his bedroom, and it's likely, therefore, also his bed with a friend, a Christopher Brooke. And then you would have a tiny study, barely space enough for a desk and a chair and a bookcase. And... That famously appears in one of his satires when babbling compatriot erupts into the room and and Dunn says, you know, in this standing wooden chest consorted with these few books, let me lie in prison and here be coffined when I die. (laughs) I love that, a standing wooden chest. The, The buildings are more recent now, but we can imagine behind a window rather like the ones we're looking up at now, can imagine the youthful Jack Dunn squirreled away in this standing wooden chest. But let's fast forward, because he returned to Lincoln's Inn, didn't he? In 1614, Dunn decided to become a priest. Now, why do you think he made that decision? So, again, this is a cause of great controversy, and if you were to speak to Dunn scholars, you would get many different answers. Some would say, particularly in the 80s and before that, that Dunn became a priest because he could not get another job, and it was 
licking your finger and holding it to the wind and finding a place where your flair for the dramatic and your hunger for closeness to the bodies of power would be most readily played out and they picked the church. Since then, there has been some recalibration of that in the scholarship, more of a sense that maybe Dunn was striving quite hard to become a priest before he was allowed to do so by the king. It's possible also that the deaths of two of his children, Mary, who was three in 1614, and Francis, who was seven in November, would have been a clarifying moment. That was a dark year for him. And it is possible, if you want to grant Dunn the reality of a calling, and if you want to believe that he truly did feel the pull of service and the pull of God... I think those two events would have made that pull stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course they would, yes. And so as you, as you describe in the book, in the bleak middle of winter, so in, on the 23rd of January in 1615, Dunn went to St Paul's Cathedral and was ordained a priest by the Bishop of London at the age of 42. And quite quickly he was appointed to be chaplain to the king, which is extraordinary, I guess a, a testament to the power of his personality and his his sermonizing and not long after in 1616 he was made the first divinity reader of Lincoln's Inn uh, for which he got 60 pounds a year and he was required to preach 50 sermons a year here at his old inn of court. So let's head into the chapel at Lincoln's Inn to discuss a little bit more about Dunn as a priest. Okay, we've just walked up the stairs and we're stepping now into the chapel of Lincoln's Inn. Wow, what an incredible space. A huge barrel vaulted wooden ceiling high above us. One big open room full of wooden pews. And what's fascinating is half the windows are old 17th century stained glass. And then the rest, which I guess got broken maybe in the Great Fire or maybe in... in in the Second World War, they're just plain glass, so there's a real contrast on two sides of the chapel. It's a spectacular place, and of course this chapel as we see it today is not the chapel that Dunn would have preached in. He was in the previous incarnation of it, but he did lay the foundation stone for this chapel, which was finished in 1623. He laid the foundation stone in 1620, uh, so he would have seen this chapel being built. How amazing. And and over here, you mentioned in your book, Catherine, what's this over by the pulpit? So there is just a tiny little slither of stained glass that you could pretty much balance in the palm of your hand, uh, commemorating John Donne, and it just says J.O. Donne. And we think it's probably a fragment of something larger, but I love that it is there, just tucked away in the bottom right-hand corner, and you would only see it if you knew to look for it. It's wonderful, yeah. Well, thank you for drawing our attention to it. And just on the other side of the pulpit is a tiny, again, just a little fragment of an alabaster carving from from an altarpiece that was from the original chapel. So two little figures there, maybe it looks like an angel or or a king, maybe. And that's rather moving to see that because we know Dunn would have known those two figures specifically, perhaps, when he was preaching in this chapel. Now, um, Dunn's biographer, Isaac Walton, liked to think of him as a kind of St. Augustine figure, the sort of sinner turned into a saint. But 
as Neil Rhodes, the editor of the Penguin Selected Prose have done, points out, that the transition was much less abrupt than that. And perhaps we could talk for a moment, Catherine, about one of his most famous sequences of poems, the Holy Sonnets, which he wrote, seems to have started writing at least, before he became a priest. How would you describe those sonnets? The thing that is most telling about them is that they are sonnets. Dunn wrote a great deal of love poetry, but not a single love sonnet. He kept the sonnet, traditionally the form that people use for romantic love, for God. They were probably written around 1610, although they are almost impossible to date. And the thing that is most notable about them is, in the same way that his poetry about sex is filled with images of the divine, his poetry about the divine is filled with imagery of sex. And In some cases, quite sort of graphically even. You know, Holy Sonnet 14, he says... Um, Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. You know, he's almost, you know, as, as Elena Bell says, he's simultaneously a mystic and a victim of sexual violence in that couplet. Absolutely, although um, some rethinkings about the use of the word ravish, it probably does also just mean sex rather than rape, right. although both readings are very much open in the poem. And... The thing about those poems, the Holy Sonnets, they are full of this keening towards God mm. and a keening towards clarity. That Dunn is longing for certainty, for the throwing out of doubt of human frailties in prayer, the throwing out of any kind of ambivalence. You know, he is longing for total summation in love of God. He is far too clever to believe that straightforwardly possible, but the poetry lays out the quest. Another one begins, batter my heart. It's kind of, you know, he wants to be plunged into the faith that he, he feels. Right. Um, and when he says, oh, burn me, O Lord, with a fiery zeal of thee and thy house, which doth in eating heal. They are violent poems. Mm. Uh, really remarkably so over the age. And I think they give us a very useful insight into Dunn's vision of God, you know, in the way that what a person decides about matters improvable, about things for which you can never have evidence, God's love being the most obvious, I think is a very vivid insight into their imagination. Absolutely, absolutely. He became the sort of resident preacher at, at Lincoln's Inn in 1616. The following year was a year of tragedy for him. In August 1617, his wife Anne gave birth to a stillborn child, their second stillborn child, and a week later, she was buried along with her child in, in the graveyard of St. Clement Danes, which, you know, the church after which Oranges and Lemons is named. And Dunn himself preached her funeral sermon, which must have been incredibly moving for him. And you have a wonderful analysis in your book of the epitaph that he drafted for his wife, Anne. And could you just describe a little bit, you know, what that was like? Because it is an extraordinary text, isn't it? So he wrote it in Latin. And although we have many, many poems that you could say with great certainty are for Anne, because of the way they pan on her name more and more, still the only one that you would be able to stake your life on it because it was the only one he said was for her, was his epitaph. 
If you look at it in his handwriting, it is shaped in the shape of a cross, and it's in Latin, and he chooses words that have multiple meanings, as if he is, in his sorrow, stacking words behind words. And he refers to her as feminae lectissimae dialectissimeque, which is a woman most choice or select or read, most beloved, loving or well-read. So she becomes both his best reader and his best text. The idea that she could read and was reading hungrily, but also that he has tried to read her, Mm. to study her, to know her, to love her. I think that's such a romantic and and moving interpretation of that. And and, and I feel absolutely that he had those um, sort of double meanings in mind because elsewhere in the epitaph he uses brackets to sort of describe Anne in different ways like the the mother a daughter a niece and he uses brackets to sort of show there are double meanings to these words yeah how how extraordinary now after Anne died in in 1617 Dunn started to write fewer and fewer poems and his energy was directed more and more towards his religious meditations and sermons. So let's move on now to talk about those. But Catherine, before we leave this chapel, this airspace where we know Dunn preached, perhaps could you just read a little bit from Holy Sonnet number 17, which seems to be referring to the death of his wife. Since she whom I loved hath paid her last debt to nature and to hers, and my good is dead, and her soul early into heaven ravished, holy in heavenly things my mind is set. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. We've dropped down to Fleet Street now, and we've stepped off into the porch of St Dunstan in the West. And just before we enter the church, Catherine, I'm looking up at this board of the rectors and vicars going right back to the 13th century. And there, right at the top of the second column, in 1624, is John Dunn. There he is. He seemed to sort of almost collect um, parishes <laughs> as a priest, didn't he? And this was one of the parishes he, he took on in 1624. Let's go inside the church to talk a little bit more about it. Gosh. So this is not the church building that he would have known, but it's still a spectacular place, an octagonal space with vaulted side chapels in each wall, heading up to a, a really stunning blue ceiling with gold stars and a great golden sun in the middle. So Catherine, Dunn's association with St Dunstan is interesting, isn't it? Because this was the church where William Tyndale, the translator of the Bible into English, he lectured and prayed here. So it had a kind of literary provenance. 
And it was also in this church that he met his friend and biographer, Isaac Walton, right? Yes, who he went on to marry in this church. Right. And indeed baptised many of his children. And Isaac Walton went on to write Dunn's biography, possibly, maybe, the first literary biography in English. Wow, that is extraordinary. He sounds like an interesting character, Walton. You know, he's probably best known for his book, The Complete Angler, about a sort of celebration of fishing. Um, and his biography of Dunn is, is quite a hagiography, right, isn't it? It's, um, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt in your own biography. Exactly that. You have to assume that no matter what Dunn does, Walton will claim that Dunn did it with a greater nuance of feeling better, swifter than any other man. So you have to just accommodate that when you turn to the text. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, I thought this might be a good moment to talk about one of the most famous and, and fascinating of Dunn's works, which he actually wrote the year before he took on St Dunstan's. In December 1623, he was taken ill, as, as he often was. Dunn was quite a sickly man, wasn't he? And in December 1623, he thought he was dying. And from the sort of portals of death, he frantically wrote and produced this work called Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. What is that work, Catherine? So he wrote it, as you say, in the expectation that he would be dead within days or weeks. So he was laying out the things that he most urgently wanted people to know. And it is here that you find many of his most sharply expressed sorrows and his most sharply expressed astonishments. It's here that you find him talking about the human body, about the loneliness of illness, and, of course, famously, about the ways in which each human is bound to another. It is in the devotions upon emergent occasions that you find the famous No Man is an Island. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating text, not least because it was put out so quickly. He wrote it in a matter of days in December and it was published almost immediately at the very start of January the following year. And as you say, it's full of these fascinating images and insights. You know, he's really sort of... (sighs) analysing himself, isn't he? He says at one point, I've cut mine own anatomy, dissected myself. There's one point where he says in in Meditation 12, they tell me it is my melancholy. Did I infuse, did I drink in melancholy into myself? Is it my thoughtfulness? Almost as if by thinking so much, he's kind of generated his own melancholy, his own depression. And in that same meditation, number 17, where the famous No Man is an Island comes from, I This is one of my favourite passages um, that he writes when he says, When one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. Some pieces are translated by age, some by sickness, some by war, some by justice. But God's hand is in every translation and his hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves again for that library where every book shall lie open to one another. And I love that idea of the afterlife as a library where there's all translated into a language that we can all understand. Right, a kind of final unity. (laughs) And of course, in amongst this sense of sorrow and pain, and he writes about the very deep pain he was in, he also has a sense of triumph. You know, he Mm. says... I am more than dust and ashes. 
I am my best part. I am my soul. Yes, a wonderful note of optimism in there. Well, let's head on now to perhaps the most important location to Dunn in London, St Paul's Cathedral. So we've walked up Ludd Hill to St Paul's Cathedral, which is towering above us at the moment. And we're standing in St Paul's Churchyard next to a rather dashing bust of John Dunn with a very pointy beard looking south towards the river. This was installed in 2012, and uh, we've just been admiring it. It's got some lines of poetry in relief sculpture around the base of the bust, and under his, his right shoulder is a little uh, image of a flea. It looks a bit like Robert Hooke's flea. And on his left shoulder is uh, a couple of lines from his poem, A Letter to the Lady Carey and Mistress Essex Rich. It says, True virtue is soul, always in all deeds all. And this is from the poem, which is the only example we have of his handwriting in English. I think that's right. That's right. They probably would have chosen a different bit (laughs) had there been more to choose from. (laughs) But lovely to see his handwriting there on this sculpture. You can reach out and touch it if you come to this spot. And round the base of the pillar is a compass rose. And if we look at what's marked here, pointing east is pointing to his birthplace, where we started today, on Bread Street. Pointing south is to Anne Moore, where she lived in Lowesley, his wife. Pointing west is where we've just come from, Lincoln's Inn, where he was reader. And pointing north is pointing to the cathedral itself, St Paul's, where he was dean. Now, Catherine, in 1621... King James appointed Dunn Dean of St. Paul's, which was one of the most prestigious positions in, in, for anyone in the English clergy. So how did he come to get this extraordinary role? So he had been gradually rising and rising in the estimation, not just of the king, but of the king's favourites, specifically the Duke of Buckingham, who probably was the person who convinced James to give this position to Dunn. And the way in which he was given it may or may not be apocryphal, but I love the idea of it. It is said that he was invited to dine with the king, and King James said to him, instead of offering him dinner, I will carve to you of a dish that I know you love well, for, knowing you love London, I do therefore make you Dean of St Paul's (laughs) Uh, but the thing I love about this particularly is that King James was said to have horrible table manners and his tongue was sort of slightly too big for his mouth so he would dribble from both sides of the cup as he tried to drink so if this story is true and he was summoned to the dinner it is possible that one of the most important moments of Dunn's life and certainly the most important in terms of his career was accompanied by like a lot of spit a spray of spittle from the <laughs> yeah. king. I love that. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, 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 you know, what do you think it was about Dunn as a, as a priest that, that meant James gave him this position? Dunn had a reputation for being able to stir people's hearts, for having a kind of rhetorical flair, for bringing all of the originality of his verse to bear on his audience. And priests needed to be rhetoricians because they were in many ways the mouthpiece of the king, of the court, of the law. And he wanted people who would be a kind of 
celebrity of the pulpit. Dunn became so popular and so famous that people crowded to hear him preach in their hundreds, you know, all the way down to the river, some of the accounts say. Well, this is the extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because, of course, the Dean of St Paul's preached within the cathedral, but he was also expected to preach from an outdoor pulpit in St Paul's churchyard. It, it wasn't on the exact spot we're standing now, but we can imagine somewhere similar. And you have a wonderful description of what London would have been like back then, the smells of London. You describe the vegetables rotting, the human waste, manure from passing horses and dogs, the stink of the Thames. And you, you, you imagine that over this never-quiet, always-moving world, Dunn sends his words flying. And in fact, you open your book with... Uh, with the fact that a, you know, a man nearly died in one of these crowds listening to, to Dunn preach. Exactly that. Dunn had gone to consecrate a chapel and it was a great pressing of bodies. And a contemporary account says that so great was the pressing, two or three were taking up dead for the time. Now, that doesn't mean actually dead, it just means unconscious. Uh, but they were very nearly trampled. And there is no account of Dunn stopping. And had he done so, it probably would have been included. So what is likely is that Dunn, in his sort of lustrous rhetorician's voice, just kept going as these bloodied men were lifted and carted <laughs> off. Carried away. Out of his sight. That is incredible, isn't it? And so what, what would it have been like, do you think, to listen to Dunn delivering one of his sermons? They would have been long. They would have expected that people came to memorise them. So they would often be in a tripartite form. He would make a point and then he would make it again and then a third time. And that was expecting that people would not just be trying to memorise them, but also might be taking notes. People would bring paper and parchment and ink to note down what he was saying. Uh, people fainted, people wept. There was a real sense that when you went to hear Dunn preach, you expected something totally different from the kind of soft propriety that you might expect of a servant today. People expected gunpowder. <laughs> That's incredible. And it's a real mark of how, you know, what a celebrity preacher he was, that when James eventually died and his son Charles became Charles I, the first public outing that Charles requested was to hear Dunn preaching, which is incredible. I love the fact that while he was preaching, he had an hourglass next to him, which was partly practical, so he could keep to time, but it could be used as a prop to describe, you know, the sort of the shortness of life on earth, and, you know, he could bring it to bear. And the title of your book, Super Infinite, which is in so many ways appropriate to the life of Dunn, comes from a sermon that he preached, right, in, in 1627, at the funeral of his friend and his, his patron, an, an older woman called Maudlin Herbert, the mother of George Herbert, the poet who may have been the subject of one of his famous poems, the, the autumnal elegy, No spring nor summer beauty hath such grace as I have seen in one autumnal face. In that sermon, he uses the term superinfinite, doesn't he? He does. He says, She would dwell bodily with that righteousness in these new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever and infinite and superinfinite forevers. But that was very much a trick of his. The idea of adding the super prefix to words that you would not think needed intensifiers, you know, super miraculous, super eternal, super dying. He was a man for whom the limits of language needed to be pushed at, blown apart. He is always pointing to something beyond his own words. Mm -hmm. 
Well, on that note, let's head inside St Paul's Cathedral, where Dunn was dean. So we've come into the spectacular St Paul's Cathedral and we've passed through the main body of the church right down to the east end of it. We're in the ambulatory behind the altar um, in an area called the Dean's Isle where there are memorials to the various deans of the cathedral and we're standing next to Dunn himself. Now of course this cathedral was built after the Great Fire of London by Christopher Wren. So this is not the cathedral that, that Dunn would have known. And as you point out, Catherine, the whole atmosphere is very different, right? <laughs> At the moment, we're in quite a hushed, it's quite museum-like, but it would have been very different in Dunn's day. Uh, much louder, and the smell would have been very different. Um, you would have had the bustle of an entire city. So uh, little boys used to urinate on the floor and then skid along them like they were ice skating. Um, if young gallants came into the cathedral with their spurs clanking on the floor, then the choir boys could run after them and extract spur money. Um, if you had a fabulous new outfit, you might come and parade along the Duke Humphreys Walk in order to display your fabulous ruffs and you know new garters. And so it was entirely different in terms of what it was aiming to be. It was much more a crucible for all humanity. Mm. Well, let's try and imagine those urinating boys and clinking spurs now as we stand next to this really extraordinary, eccentric monument. The first thing to say is that this is a remarkable object in its own right because it's one of the few pieces of statuary which survives from the previous cathedral. It's one of the few statues that wasn't destroyed when, when the cathedral burnt down. So this did stand in the old cathedral and here it stands today. And, and what we're looking at is a, is a life-size standing figure of Dunn. He's standing on a funeral urn and he's wrapped in a winding sheet so, Catherine, how did he devise this image and how did it come about? Dunn wanted to die in the pulpit. And he had a sense of himself drawing near to the end of his life. And so he fashioned for himself the most bespoke couture memento mori that you could ever have. He arranged for an artist to come to draw him. And he covered himself in his actual winding sheet. He tied it in a knot at the top of the head and at the feet. He pulled it over his entire body and then he drew it back only from his face, which, as he was growing closer to death, was becoming more and more skull-like. And then he took that piece of art and propped it life-size next to his deathbed. So the most personalised vision of one's own final rest that you could possibly have. I love it. It's so heavy metal. <laughs> I mean, this was a man who deeply understood the power of clothes. He always mm. knew that you can fashion yourself with the things that you put upon your body. And I think it says a great deal that he wanted the final image of himself to be in his winding sheet. It's an amazing Sculpture, isn't it? I mean, you can see the folds of the winding sheet are spectacular. You can see that he's naked underneath. You can see his knees, his, his arms, and, and still, even approaching death, there is beauty in that face, isn't there? It's a really, his, those cheekbones are extraordinary. They are. Um, and his, his quaffed, pointy beard sticking out of the, uh, of the sheet up there. So, you, yes, absolutely, you said that he had this sort of dream of dying mid sermon in the pulpit. And 
And he gave this famous final sermon, which was posthumously published as Death's Jewel. And Isaac Walton, his biographer, described this event as him having preached his own funeral sermon. So what's distinctive about Death's Jewel, this final sermon he gave? I think probably no other done sermon is as bitterly sad. It has that sense that we give birth astride the grave. He said, we have a winding sheet in our mother's womb, which grows with us from our conception, and we come into the world wound up in that winding sheet, for we come to seek a grave. And it is dark, and it is not without anger, but it is also in its final moment. It points again towards eternity. You know, Dunn was a man who could not see an ending without also clawing from it a beginning. Mm -hmm. And it is also very striking for the fact that as he turns to go, he says, and there we leave you. And a lot of preachers, when they preached, the we was just them, the royal we. Mm -hmm. But Dunn always said I. And, you know, who is that we? I say in the book, you could, if you were being frivolous, argue that it was Dunn himself, that Dunn has so many variations of himself, you know, the persecuted, the rake, the lawyer, the bereaved, the lover, the jailbird, the desperate, the striver, the pious. But for Dunn, of course, it's God. The we is the God that he has been summoning and desperately summoning his entire life. And as he steps down from his final sermon, he leaves them with the sense that perhaps finally the summoning has taken place. What a wonderful, wonderful image. And, and yes, he died just a short while later, on the 31st of March, 1631. According to Walton, he closed his own eyes and disposed his hands and body into such a posture as required not the least alteration by those who came to shroud him. So he, he kind of put himself into the, the very posture that we see him standing in here. And apparently, you know, once he'd been buried at St. Paul's, an anonymous hand came and wrote a short verse in charcoal over his grave which said reader I am to let thee know Dunn's body only lies below for could the grave his soul comprise earth would be richer than the skies it was rather a beautiful little quatrain isn't it well Catherine we're standing here in front of this remarkable image of a remarkable man who we've been discussing today It's almost exactly 400 years since he died. You know, having written about him, having immersed yourself in his work, what is it that he is able to give us today? What is his enduring legacy? I think one of the things that you can take from Dunn is this sense of a demand for attention. That's why his poetry was hard. It's why his sermons were powerfully demanding. He expected those who read him, who came to hear him, who spoke with him, who loved him, he expected them to be attentive, to give the entire untrammeled power of their minds to him. There's a bit I love in one of his sermons where he knows that human attention is fleeting and difficult and tricksy and mercurial. He says, Now was there ever any man seen to sleep in the cart between Newgate and Tyburn, between the prison 
Newgate and the praise of execution. That would be Tyburn. Does any man sleep? And yet we sleep all the way. From the womb to the grave, we are never thoroughly awake. And that, I think, is Dunn's cry. You know, awake to, to our mortality, to our beauty, to the precise ways in which humanity can cut through each other, to the remarkable quality of humankind. I think what Dunn gives us is a sense of ourselves both as a terrible disaster. He is a skeptic. He understands what it is to be defeated over and over. You know, he says, only man of all the venom things does work upon itself with inborn sting. He thought we were appalling. And yet, he also thought that we were a miracle. He thought that humanity, you know, he says somewhere, you know, compared unto a man, the world itself is a dwarf, that every single human soul has in it a greater infinity than the world. And, you know, that idea that he could hold love and dread, that he could both salute our decay and say, it is an astonishment to be alive and it behoves you therefore urgently now to be astonished. I think that is what has lasted. How wonderful. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for enthusing us about Dunn today. I, you know, we started by saying that your book is, an, is a work of evangelism, and I must say, in my case, it's absolutely worked. I'm now a complete <laughs> uh, zealot for Dunn, and um, I'm very grateful to you for that. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Catherine Rundle, to the Honourable Society of Lincoln's Inn, to St Dunstan in the West, to St Paul's Cathedral, to Naxos Audiobooks for the clips of Geoffrey Whitehead and Will Keane reading from John Donne's poetry, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll leave you with perhaps Dunn's most famous passage of all, from meditation number 17 in his Devotions. It's a meditation on the sound of a church bell tolling for a dying man. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manor of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee.